Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Paul Levinson in this episode. Paul's history in online education spans almost 50 years of teaching, and he remains committed to online education as a means of engaging students across both synchronous and asynchronous pedagogies as a professor at Fordham University in New York. This podcast is sponsored by the International Council for Open and Distance Education, ICDE, the leading global membership organization working towards bringing inclusive, quality education to all. By joining the ICDE Global Network of Flexible and Distance Learning, you can help transform the world through inclusive education. Become a member or find out more by visiting www.icde.org. I'm talking with Professor Paul Levinson, whose pioneering work in online education began with Connect Ed in the mid-1980s, which taught a variety of courses, including artificial intelligence and real life, to students in over 20 countries through online courses. Paul is a novelist, singer-songwriter, and professor of communications and media studies, still a very active professor at Fordham University in New York. Paul, it is wonderful to be talking with you. Same here. Can we start with a brief overview of your career in publications? Yeah, well, listen, uh, I don't have that much hair, so I wear a lot of different hats. And, uh, you know, you mentioned some of them. And actually, I'll add to that that actually probably the first public media that I got involved in was recording music. I was a songwriter. I was in several groups. I had an album that came out in 1972 called Twice Upon a Rhyme. And in 2020, I came out with an album called Welcome Up Songs of Space and Time. As a writer, I write both science fiction and media studies, media history, discussion of possible futures, nonfiction. My critics in both areas criticize my work because they're saying it's the other thing. So I've I've gotten critiques of my science fiction from people who say, come on, this is much too serious. It's much too philosophic. Well, listen, Isaac Asimov was very philosophic, you know, with his psychohistory. And and people who read my nonfiction say that I'm too optimistic. It's science fiction. I, you know, I think social media do do a lot of damage, but by and large, they're still profoundly democratic democratizing developments that help more people get into the mix. And then, as you said, uh, I'm still very much of an active teacher. I'm sure it's obvious to our listeners already. I enjoy talking. And uh, (laughs) one of the many good things about teaching is you have a captive audience, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, most students are not going to walk out regardless of how ridiculous something you say might be. Great. So, Paul, uh, take us back to the mid-1980s. You're teaching in Connected. You're doing the first, well, probably the world's first online education. Uh, What was it like? What was the mode? How did it work? Okay, well, technically it wasn't the first online education in that broadest sense because I got the idea for Connected Education 
shortened to Connect Ed. I came up with both those names. I got the idea because uh, in 1983, I was at an academic conference in Philadelphia. And after I gave a talk about something, uh, a, a guy came up to me and said, you know, have you ever thought about teaching online and I was barely using computers then and I didn't even fully know or understand what he meant uh, but it turned out he was working for an organization WBSI the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute we had headquarters in La Jolla California and and so by 1984 I was actually teaching courses for them. They were not for credit. It was sort of a, an advanced program for business executives. And I was amazed at how powerful a tool that was because I had students in my classes from all over the world. I had some famous people in my classes. Marlon Brando was one of the students at WBS. I said, that gives you an idea. You know, generals in the army, uh, Barry McCaffrey, who now is a retired general, and he's a commentator on MSNBC and other uh, news media here in the United States, uh, he was actually a student in the WBSI program as well. So um, that gave me the idea of, gee, this is a good thing. Maybe we can do this for credit. And Coincidentally, that was at a very good time in my life to do this because uh, our first child, Simon, was born in 1983. And, you know, Tina had uh, left her job, and so she was home taking care of our baby. I, I was teaching then at a university, but I wanted to spend more time at home too. And, you know, I, I'll never forget, I woke up one morning and I said to Tina, hey, sweetie, you know, I have a crazy idea. Let's say we devise a way of offering courses online, but not just do what WBSI uh, did and is doing. Let's see if we can somehow marry this to a an institution, a university, and see if they would grant credit for the courses. Mm. And I think that would be a really original thing. And so that's really how the idea for ConnectEd was born. And, and then finally, uh, you know, in the, in the fall of 1984 and the spring of 1985, we began rolling out our first courses. So, so how did it work? Was it text on screen? What, what was the what was the mode? Yeah, a hundred percent text on screen. I mean, you, you know, if you look at where we are today, there was absolutely no video on screen. Mm. There was really nothing. There were, there were no spoken words uh, that you could do. Again, this is like 1985. I mean, it, it was so early, there wasn't even an internet as we now know it. it you know, the, the internet was, of course, uh, technically invented by the U.S. military in the late 1960s. Uh, it, in the mid-80s, it was used in some academic institutions for very limited kinds of communication. No courses were actually taught. And and so this was really a, ahead of, of, of the game. And yeah, you could, with a lot of great effort, get some kind of you know still image. And in fact, photographs didn't come out that well. Cartoons were better, still cartoons were better than photographs, but text was fine. And so this was a completely text 
based kind of education. And in fact, um, we conducted these courses on a system called EYES, the Electronic Information Exchange System, located in headquartered in Newark, New Jersey. The late Murray Tor, if he just passed away a year or two ago, had developed this system, not for education per se, but just for a way of people to communicate. And, and they had come up with a term called computer conferencing. Uh, it was like a fancy name for a group of people in what we would today call a forum, yeah. basically exchanging ideas and talking. And I realized, you know, early on in WBSI was doing this as well. You could use this template of computer conferencing to conduct actual credit awarding courses. Great. Now, by computer conferencing, that was text messages or text-based messages on screen to, to one another. Yes. Yeah. So you're leveraging that as a means of uh, people sharing ideas, perspectives. It's quite a powerful means of reflection too, isn't it? It is. And one of the things that we emphasize from the get-go is th that you didn't have to immediately respond uh, to the text that you were seeing on the screen. You know, the fancy word for that kind of communication is asynchronous. Yeah. And of course, that's a huge yeah. difference between the in-person classroom, whereas by necessity, it's always synchronous. You ask a question, the students have to answer then. You know, when the class is over an hour or two later, yeah, I mean, now, of course, they could send you a message. But back then, uh, there was no way you could communicate with the students. Mm. Our courses... Yeah were conducted 24 hours a day, meaning students anywhere in the world at any time, whether it's the middle of the night for them or high noon, could take part in the course. And we found that to be enormously valuable. Paul, your career in teaching spans, uh, what, 50, 50 years plus, I, I think. I began teaching my first classes uh, at an institution, uh, it's a good name for it, institution, Fairleigh Dickinson <laughs> University yeah. here in the United States in New Jersey. And, and that was uh, in, in 1975, 1976. Across that time then, you've started teaching using the EYES service. And now you're teaching uh, synchronously through Zoom. So you would have seen the huge spectrum of shift take place over those decades. Can you talk us through how some pedagogies would have shifted, how your own online teaching practice would have shifted across those decades? Yes, and let me first say it hasn't shifted completely. Uh, so obviously one and the crucial difference in using Zoom as your teaching method versus text on screen is, is that you see and hear the person. And, and that's just a very different sensory experience. One, by the way, my doctoral dissertation and in effect my first book is Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media. And, and in that book, I, I talk about how as media evolve, they make the world more human and more natural. A lot of critics think it's going the other way, and that's just not correct. So if you think about the telephone replacing the telegraph, we don't communicate with dots and dashes. We talk to each other as you and I are talking now. So yeah. although the, the telegraph was a wonderful invention, it was an incredibly artificial invention. The, the price that had to be paid for getting that information across 
great distances instantly was it was even more artificial than writing itself because the dots and dashes were an encoding of of the writing. But the telephone made that much more human. And so, yeah, although text and reading and writing are wonderful, they're not as fundamental to human existence as talking and seeing the person you're talking to. Mm. So so right there and then, that that's the, the huge difference. But I will say that in the Zoom classes that I teach, I try to have some of the asynchronous quality that we developed in Connected Education in the 1980s. I try to integrate some of that into the Zoom classes. For example, what I always have the students do uh, is write papers and in an in-person class, talk to the class about what they're researching. Mm -hmm. I tend to teach advanced undergraduate classes or graduate classes. For example, One of my most frequently taught classes is called Digital Media and Public Responsibility. But an important part of the class in the in-person classroom is when students talk to the class about their research, I actually assign two other students in the class to talk about the work of two other students after they present their work. So that way there's an interaction. And I've done it both ways with Zoom. Sometimes when I teach these classes through Zoom, uh, the student does a presentation to the class this way, and then I call upon the students right here. But other times what I do when the student does the the presentation uh, through Zoom is I tell the students uh, to not only ask questions to the speaker in the Zoom session, but other students in the class, I encourage them, if you have ideas, think about what you just heard. And I set up, in effect, a computer conferencing module where the other students can ask questions of what the first uh, the person who made the presentation was talking about. And so that, to some extent, recreates the asynchronous experience. Great. So you are actually then leveraging the strengths of both the synchronous possibilities through Zoom and the asynchronous possibilities of computer conferencing. Because I, I think uh, one of the fears I have as technology advances is we, we tend to lose the value of the asynchronous, that time to reflect, that time to um, think aloud in text, uh, to take your time to compose your thoughts and then share them for the world to see. And, of course, also with asynchronous computer conferencing, you can respond to any message at any time, so you can end up with some quite interesting threads. So you're still seeing that in your practice. A hundred percent. And... One of the things that also uh, is helped by the asynchronous mode are I literally, uh, just this past summer and the previous summer, teaching some classes through Zoom, had students from as far away as China, uh, Turkey, I mean, a variety of of places around the world. And uh, so, you know, in terms of doing it synchronously, you know, I might be teaching the class at five o'clock in the afternoon yeah. Eastern time. It's like four o'clock in the morning for someone else in the class. Not a good time to take the class. Too late, too early. And what I do for those students is I record, obviously, the Zoom session. And then the student can watch that on her or his own time. And again, ask questions asynchronously. Yeah. And Interestingly, but not surprisingly, often those kinds of interactions are 
more astute than people who are just asking questions right after the presentation for the very yeah, reason yeah. that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Paul, across the, those five decades, there's been a lot of scholarship as well. And I know you've been doing a lot of science fiction fantasy writing. You've received awards for that. But coming to your online education publications, what are some of the key themes that your work has suggested, particularly those that you think are really worth highlighting today? Well, um, in pretty much all of my books, I say something more or less about online education and how it works. And as a matter of fact, my breakthrough nonfiction book, uh, and by breakthrough, I mean this is what you know got me on the map. It was reviewed by major publications. Uh, and uh, that book is The Soft Edge, A Natural History and Future of the Information Revolution. And in there, there is a lot of material about online education and, and how that's uh, operating. And, and this was in the, so this was written in the late 1990s, again, way, way before Zoom. The reason why I mention that is I I think of that time, the late 1990s, as almost right in the middle of the origins of online education in the early to mid-80s and what we're doing now in the third decade of the 21st century. Uh, and, And so that has most of my work there. But honestly, I haven't really written and done too much about uh, online education and Zoom. Uh, I don't know if you know someone by the name of Peter Jandrick. He, during the height of COVID, and actually I think for two additional years, so talking about three sort of symposia, Hmm. basically uh, asked a group of people, including me, to talk about the pros and cons of distance education, which was pretty much required during the pandemic lockdown. Unsurprisingly to people who know me, I was pretty much all by myself by saying, I think it's great. You know, I hate to say that anything (laughs) about the lockdown is good, but I, you know, to me it was a uh, reaffirmation of the value of online education. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I mentioned Jandrick, he, he has published three, I don't know whether they're special issues of a journal or, uh, or a book, but I, I would recommend them. And again, it, what they are are basically a couple of paragraphs by 30 or 40 people describing each year of their uh, distance education, how they were coping with the pandemic. And it's a, it, again, it's an interesting continuum ranging from people who were m- just moaning more and more all the way through <laughs> to people who saw pros and cons to people like me who pretty much I was just happy about it. Great. So we are now, uh, well, I think pretty much post-pandemic. I think we'll be living with COVID for uh, the balance of um, of society. But your observations about online learning and education at the present time. So you've got your own way of practicing it. Uh, What are some of your observations about how online education is working more broadly? Well, I think that's a very, very good question. And one of the things that I've noticed here in the United States, and I think it's, uh, I I don't know if anyone has actually done, you know, research and put it together in an article or a book. But one of the things that is uh, pretty noticeable and, and it's, uh, it's worldwide, but I'm just more aware of what's going on in the United States, is the way that different universities have come out of the 
pandemic, uh, some trying as fast as possible to go back to just in-person education, or as I have always called it, place-based, book-paced education. And by the way, (laughs) paste, I mean (laughs) (laughs) P-A-S-T-E. You know, the number of universities that have gone back to that so fast, it it was unbelievable. Uh, And that uh, also is on a continuum. Fordham University, for example, although there is still some online education here and there in departments at Fordham, it's only summer session where the summer session dean was so impressed as she should be. I mean, everyone was impressed. And as I mentioned, by the international reach that any program can have if you're teaching it through Zoom. And that happened literally in the summer of 2020. I was asked at the last minute, you know, they knew that I had some experience in online education. Could you teach a course online this summer? We know it's asking a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I'll teach a course online. And I did. And we had a great group of students from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So the summer session, because it's a special session, they regularly program some Zoom classes during the summer. And again, if you go around the United States, you'll find some schools that have much more than that. They have X number of you know Zoom classes uh, in the fall and spring semesters or whatever the number of semesters are. Mm. Um, and then you have some schools that just don't want anything to do with online education at all. One of the things which I think has happened, and I'm not privy to the surveys that were done, so I can't vouch for the complete accuracy of this information. But the general sense that most people have is that students, for the most part, complained about their online classes. And it's understandable because there is a social aspect of being in college you you know you you want to be with your peers you want to have fun yeah you can't quite do that online Mm. uh my class has got nothing but rave reviews from the (laughs) students so at least i'm I'm happy about that yeah so it's not so much that it's online it's actually how it's done by the sound of it which which is kind of odd because uh you're you're really against the grain here in terms of promoting a Zoom-based education as a really positive thing. Where do you think other educators are perhaps not doing the job as well? Um, Why is it that Zoom-based education has such a poor reputation? Well, it's an interesting thing, you know, and it's a fascinating thing. There are all kinds of teachers, obviously, all kinds of professors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, as is pretty well known about me, um, I I hardly prepare at all for any of the classes I teach because I know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I come into the class and obviously there's a syllabus. I don't have to prepare for it because I know the material like the back of my hand. There are other faculty who you know, come in with copious notes and every class they think out from the beginning to the end. And I don't mean to, you know, mock anyone's mode of education. I'm a great believer in whatever it works for you, works for you. And so I think that there are a lot of faculty who they have a process in which they can effectively teach in person. That process is very different than teaching online. There are some similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And they just don't want to learn another process. Um, 
And, you know, it's easy to get infuriated. Zoom, for example, has like this way of every time you log on to Zoom, it takes a moment or two. You have to download their most updated version. Mm. And sometimes it takes longer than a minute or two to to download it mm. and, and have it installed. And if you're like me and like, you know, you have a class that you're teaching at two o'clock and you figure you'll log on like two, three minutes to two, the last thing you want to see is you're trying to get ready for the class is, oh, you have to download this new version. You have to make sure it takes. It won't take too long. So, I mean, so even I get a little annoyed by that, but there are some faculty who just can't stand that. They, they, they don't like computers. I mean, I've seen, actually, and I won't mention the person's name, I've seen more than one faculty person say, if I have to continue teaching by Zoom, I'm going to find another profession. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mm-hmm. become a professor to spend my life in front of a computer screen. They, yeah. they have a real antipathy for computers. But again, to show you what kind of person I am, I spend... I don't know. I mean, I I don't add up every minute, but I probably spend 10 hours a day if you add it up online doing one thing or another. And to me, it's very much part of my life. But I also have a very active in-person life. Mm. And, um, you know, we go up to Cape Cod every summer. And that, by the way, is a very good example. So, So to me, a perfect day is, uh, you know, get up in the morning, you know, maybe teach a course, do some writing, go out for a nice swim, you know, come back, maybe teach another course, maybe do some writing, you know, and I do love an in-person classroom too. I mean, that's fun in its own way. So uh, I like the best of both because of that. Yep, your day at Cape Cod certainly sounds a lot better. Actually, while you were talking, you reminded me of um, Bush Holmberg's guided didactic conversation. Um, You're probably familiar with that. And I wonder whether many Zoom teachers actually instead are for a scripted didactic presentation. So is, is Zoom actually taking us away from the conversation or more to the presentation, or is, is that part of the issue, do you think? I'm not sure because, again, I, I don't understand. I mean, to me, this is why I was making the point before. Everything I do is unscripted. You know, mm. as, as a matter of fact, uh, when I do things that are scripted, I basically ad-lib anyway. So the very notion of education being scripted, and again, as I said before, I'm a strong believer into each her or his own. You know, if it works for you, fine. As long as you're not hurting anybody, go ahead and do it. But but I, I wouldn't be a professor if, if part of that was I had to prepare a script beforehand. And that applies to whether it's Zoom or in person. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, the research you'd most like to see, you've got a great deal of history in online education. What article or what book do you think needs to be written right now? You, know, you were touching on this before. I, th- I think that, that the pandemic and the further we get away from the lockdown, which gives us a chance to, as Marshall McLuhan said, see this in the rearview mirror and then get a better understanding of it, um, I, th- there are a lot... There are a myriad of lessons, some very big, some very small, that we can learn from the, I don't know how many classes were taught online through Zoom during the lockdown, but as tragic and as horrible, I mean, look, it can't get much worse than that. It killed millions of people worldwide. Mm. But, but you know, one of the few 
positive things. Well, more than a few. I mean, the vac- the new method, the RNA vaccines. Those are that's a good, you know, result of having been forced yeah. to come out during the pandemic. But as far as education is concerned, I would l- love to see. And if any graduate students or professors just starting out in their work are at all interested in this, th- there are books and books to be written about the revolution that occurred from 2020 to 2022. And I've seen some preliminary studies, here in the United States at least, that uh, scores on math examinations, mathematics, for grade school students have gone down significantly uh, as a result of the pandemic. And I think it's been... I wouldn't say, you know, completely established, but fairly well established. If you're talking about a five, six, seven-year-old child, that online education is not the best alternative for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that was obvious all along because, first of all, again, for, for a five-year-old, the process of going to school provides a crucial uh, opportunity for socialization. Yeah. You learn to live and work and play, have fun, get angry with all those various things, other people and, and other people your age, and, and, and that's very important. So, yeah. I mean, th- that's become somewhat clear already. But what I haven't seen much of at all, if anything, uh, is... What about university students? How have they fared? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I would say this. Here's, here's an, just off the top of my head. There are X number of lawyers, right? So here in the United States, you, you, how do you become a lawyer? You have to get a BA degree, and then you go to law school afterwards. So uh, yeah. you know, rather than going on for an MA or an MD, you go on for the law degree. So obviously in 2020, when the pandemic hit, th- there were people who were about to do that. And uh, certainly in 2021 and even into 2022. And uh, I, it would be very interesting. I think it would be a fascinating study who are these people? Who are these lawyers? What have they been doing? Mm, yeah, yeah, good, good point. So sometimes I think we we tend to paint online learning with the same brush, and certainly it doesn't work for five, six, seven year olds. But uh, maybe it does work quite well for adults who are doing postgraduate study towards a professional qualification. That's right, and I th- I do think the older you are, the the, the easier it is to switch from in person to online. So, I mean, if you look, let's say, at high school students, high school kids. So now, obviously, so let's just talk about, you know, a 16-year-old high school kid. Um, they still need some socialization, not as much as a five-year-old, yeah. uh, but more than a 25 or a 35-year-old. So, you know, for them learning online, it, it probably wasn't as difficult as a five or six-year-old, but they probably had some social issues that that let's say a law student didn't have Mm. so yeah all of this does need to be studied and again you know nature served up this pandemic and it was a horrible thing but in most things in life even even the worst tragedies have sometimes if you look at them in a different way have valuable lessons you can learn from them Mm. Mm. 
So, Paul, just to conclude, two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. Well, let's start with the second. Um, First of all, I mentioned earlier on my wife, Tina Vavzik. She was right with me when uh, we uh, started Connect Education, and she interacted with the students, not in teaching the actual classes, but more on the level of is your modem set up you know properly you know this and that i mean which was very very important as well Mm. um so i asked her if she would be interested in being interviewed by you she's pretty busy now but she said maybe sometime in the future so let me uh uh, work on that Mm. Uh, let's get back to peter jandrick now i don't know exactly what courses he's taught online but he's really at the cutting edge of understanding online education Lovely. Paul, it's been a fascinating conversation for me. Thank you so much for uh, taking me through your history. And thank you so much, too, for being a leader and legend of online learning. Well, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. And I'm very glad that you're doing this uh, podcast and this series of interviews. You can learn more about Paul and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.